Well, this is one of those texts that it only takes about a drop of humility in somebody's soul to wonder uh, who is sufficient <laughs> to uh, comment on these things. Um, this prologue to John, as it's known, these first 18 verses of John's gospel are, um, by anybody's recollection, one of the very big key uh, highlights in all of the scripture. And it just, you know, if you're me, you just wonder, uh, where do I begin? <laughs> this could, you know, we could have a weekend uh, retreat on these 18 verses and, and maybe still not do them justice. It's certainly one of the most written about passages in all of Scripture. There's at least three major heresies that I know of that arose uh, from this text and people arguing about this text. It's um, been the source of all kinds of debates. And so, yeah, it's really deep, um, like seriously deep. <laughs> but even the very deepest well, like just picture a really deep well, even the deepest well we have access to if we just humbly dip our little cup. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning is just contemplate. We're just gonna dip our little cup. We can't cover every little word in this amazing passage, but we can just contemplate a few things. So for John, though this is really deep, it's also very personal and it's also very simple. Because when it's all said and done, John is saying something like this. I just really want you to believe. This is my iPhone 5. I've seen it. I've handled it. I've interacted with it. And I'm setting it before you as truth. Not as a religious idea. Not as like a 21st century spiritualism. But I'm actually setting this before you as truth. And so there are these things I want you to see, these seven signs in John. There are these things I want you to hear, these discourses of Jesus, or these very seven very famous I am statements. And I'm doing this because I want you to believe. I want you to have confidence in interacting with this person that I'm setting before you as not only the source of all reality, as we read in Genesis and in the gospel this morning, but the one who sustains all reality and the one who is recreating himself in you. And I want you to have confidence in that. But see, where we often get stuck is we think that Christianity is about belief. We think that it's about holding certain things in our mind as true. Well, it includes that, but it has to go past that into confidence. A young couple who had had just one child, and I think she'd grown to be about four or five years old or something, and one day they were cleaning out her bedroom, and under their, her bed, they found pieces, hard, wooden, old pieces of toast. And they asked her, what, what are you doing? And she said, well, what if someday there's no food for me? Now just imagine being her mom or her dad, you know, the brokenheartedness that you would feel that your daughter thinks that there's the potential that someday you wouldn't feed her. The lack of confidence she has in you, that basic rudimentary lack of confidence. And that's what John's getting at, that we would have confidence in him. One of my favorite things to do is walk on the beach at sunset. And lately that's been Corona Del Mar. And there's a family of seagulls there. 
And often I take bread and I feed them. And they squawk all around me. And some of them are really athletic. I'll take bread and throw it up in the air as high as I can. And they'll come swooping in and catch it. It's kind of fun. It's like a little personal circus. But every day I walk out there, I, I kiddingly, this is a window into my dopey little soul. Every day I walk out there, they start, you know how birds are, they start scurrying away from me. And I'm like, yo, it's me. I feed you guys. Where are you going? Right? And, and you just, you know, you can't get too close, but you got to get close enough just for them to see that first little piece of bread. And then they start getting some confidence and they start coming around. And that's something like what John's up to. I want you to have confidence in Jesus such that you would actually give your life to him. And I don't mean like come forward and get saved. That's not what John meant either. That you would actually have so much confidence in Jesus that he is the expression of what it means to be really human that you'd begin to pattern your life after him. So the basic plot of John's gospel is something like this. Creation no longer knows its creator and it's in darkness. And the creator God is now acting in a new way to redeem it. And he's doing so by this light who has now come into the world. This Jesus who came to God's people, but they didn't receive him, as Tom just read to us. But those who did receive him and believe in him are, giving the, are given this new kind of life, this eternal life. And so let's just contemplate a couple things here. So in the beginning, you look at your passage if you want. John says, was the word. And this is just a basic, simple setting forth of Christ's eternal divinity. And then that this word became human or became flesh and dwelt or pitched its tent or tabernacled amongst us. And that this word then, this expression, this message from God is the complete and ultimate Knowledge of what God wants to know us about himself, that Jesus is concrete. He's not a word um, in the sense like, you know, you'd look up a word in a dictionary to get all of its various shades of meaning, but this is a concrete expression of God. It's the complete and ultimate expression of who he is. And that Jesus then is for us a clear way back to God for anybody who would take it. And this is what's so important about how John the Baptist just kind of pops up here out of nowhere, where he said, where the text says that he is sent to bear witness about that light. Why? Again, that all might believe through him. Now think about this. Think of our culture today. And you know me, I'm never mean to, I never intend to pick on anybody or to be mean. I'm just simply trying to make observations that would be helpful. But just think of the stuff stunning arrogance of rejecting this witness, right? In any other phase of life, what do we say? Well, we've got some forensic evidence and well, maybe we've got some DNA stuff, but come on, you all watch those cop shows. What I was looking for, witnesses. Because if there's a witness to the crime, and especially more than one, then we can exa and know exactly what happened. So think of the arrogance of setting aside this witness. Why? Because he wrote 2,000 years ago? Or do, you, do we think collectively that people back then were dumb? That they had no capacity to understand what was happening right before their eyes and write about it? You know, they had a language? In fact, most of them are brighter than most of you in this room. They knew more than one language. Sometimes they knew two or three languages and more than one dialect of Greek. These are smart people. They're at least as smart as you. 
And they knew how to actually represent reality with words. This is not like back in the dinosaur age or something where, you know, they didn't even know how to talk about things. And so John is saying, I'm setting this before you. Look at verse 14. We have seen his glory. And think about it. John was his best friend. He was as close to Jesus as any human being could be. I mean, right now, if I put on this stage somebody who, if I said to you, this is George Bush Jr., you know, the third's best friend, or this was Bill Clinton's best friend from Hope, Arkansas. And he happened to also be his, uh, what do they call it, chief of staff in the White House for two terms. So I said, best friend from Hope, Arkansas, in the White House with him for eight years as his chief of staff, he can tell you a little something about Bill Clinton. You'd all go, all right, okay. You know, you'd probably believe him better than Rush Limbaugh, right? (laughs) On Clinton, right? Why? Because you have this sense of witness of somebody who's close to him. And this is precisely what's going on in John. So when he says, look at your text, this is the true light which gives light to everyone. He actually has come into the world. And I know that most of the world around him didn't get who he was. So sad because the world was made through him, but the world didn't know him. His own people didn't receive him or welcome him. Now what's going on here, I think, is John's trying to tell us that God is invisible, not in the sense of being unreal. Did you catch that? God is invisible, but not in the sense of being unreal, but invisible only in the sense that human eyes are not capable of seeing him. But there are specks of dust all over this room right now that your eyes are not picking up. And you're not seeing ultraviolet light. And you're not seeing uh, infrared light. You can't. It's here. It's all around you. It's millimeters from your eyeball but you can't see it. But if we brought into this room, I forget what it's called, like a spectroscope or something. If we brought into this room the right instrument, you could then actually see the ultraviolet and infrared light through a certain way of viewing it. My God, how I wish we could hold Jesus up to our culture and say, through him, you can see what you can't normally see. I know it's invisible to you, and I know, therefore, you think you don't really get it, but there is a creator God who for 2,000 years has been trying to recreate his broken, hurting, sick, dysfunctional, out-of-tune creation, and that process is invisible to the human eye, and therefore, it's easy to diss. But with Jesus, you can see that this is what's actually happening. For now, I get it. It's really sort of dark out there, right? Chemical weapons in Syria, gun violence in Chicago, anti-gay violence in England. This weekend, an unemployed man stabbed his wife to death because he didn't see any future for them. They were just sitting around watching TV all day, so he stabbed her to death. A new study out... I forget, from Gallup or Pew, says that 77% of Americans now believe that we're becoming less religious as the days go on. And maybe worst of all, I heard Nicki Minaj is off idol and Tim Tebow's out of the NFL. I mean, it is getting dark out there, right? I mean, what are we going to do without Nicki and Tim? 
But as I was sitting with this this week, I realized, I I don't know why it was surprising to me, it shouldn't be, that it's also really dark in here. And that can be scary and surprising, even shocking, the thoughts that can go through our minds, the feelings that come out of nowhere that just kind of explode inside of us wherever feelings come from. It is dark, and John knows this, but John wants us also to know, but to all who would receive him, to all who would believe in his name, which means not to believe that his name was Jesus, but in the character of who he was, that he would then give them the right to become children of God. Now, again, one of the big things going on in our culture today would some, some really, you know, like politically correct, really hip, you know, maybe rock star, or actor, actress, or somebody would say, yes, but Todd, aren't we all the children of God? Well, yeah, but not in the way you mean it. Yes, we're all the children of God in that we are created by him. And we all live in his house This earth, this universe, this cosmos, and all the universes in it, God's house. So yes, we are created by him, and yes, we live in his house, and in that sense, we are all children. But those of you in this room, you've all been children. Most of you have had children. Is that what you would expect from your children? Is that all you'd want from them? Just to know that you biologically created them and they live in your house? No, and that's not what God wanted either. He wants this interpersonal, cooperative friend, father, daughter, father, son kind of relationship. And this is why, no matter how politically correct America gets, no matter how much Christianity gets marginalized, I will go to my deathbed saying, there remains the importance of a conscious, personal choice. Did you catch that? A conscious, personal choice that my father who created me and in whose house I live, I choose to be his loving daughter and to seek to understand his will in creating and sustaining and recreating me and then to shape my life around that. No one stumbles into that and accidentally finds himself doing it. It is a conscious and deeply personal choice. So whoever did want him, John says, whoever believed that he was who he claimed to be and would do what he said, he, God then made them to be their true selves, their child of God selves. And again, just sitting with this this, morning, this week, just trying to contemplate this, the thought came to me, what if the hardest part of conversion Think with me here. What if the hardest part of conversion and discipleship is not apologetic proofs, but the want to? What if that's the har- actually the hardest part of conversion? I want to relate to God. can get kind of inconvenient. Starts messing with that darkness. 
start seeing things about yourself that you hate and you think, God, I need $30,000 worth of therapy to fix this, right? Or if Todd knew, you know, or worse than that, if God knew, right? It can get really inconvenient. And it takes a kind of tenacity because everything in us wants to say, isn't he just the carpenter's son? That would be so much easier. But think about it, to receive any gift means that you have to place confidence in its reality and its trustworthiness. You need to take it in and possess it. Like if I said to you, here, here's my phone. You have to take confidence in it that it actually works. My little timer works. And that I could, you know, like turn it over to you. You won't receive a gift if you don't have confidence in its goodness and its trustworthiness. You actually won't take it in or possess it. But yet we live in this really weird place, like part of us wanting to hold God off, another part of us, the deepest part of us, longing for connection. Think of the infants in Romanian orphanages banging their heads against the wall just because no one will hold them. That's the actual human condition. And this is why John's so shocked. Light came into the world and people continue to bang their heads on the wall not actually receiving the gift that had come to them. Or think of that, LA, um, that LA-based movie, Crash. In one of the crash scenes, remember what the detective says, it's the sense of touch. In any real city, you walk, you know, you brush past people, you bump into people. In LA, nobody touches you. You're always behind this metal and glass, you know, of a car. I think we miss that touch so much that we crash into each other on purpose just to see if we can feel something. Remember that scene in that movie? Or one commentator I read this week brought to mind the, you know, Michelangelo's uh, ceiling in the Sistine Chapel in Rome. You know, where God has just created Adam and is reaching out to him and, you know, Adam looks like he just woke up from a, one of those hard naps, you know? Like he's just been created, and he kind of just looks like he's not really sure what's going on. But God reaches out to him to make first contact. And what puzzles John so much is that we resist. I mean, I know I do. Sometimes I'd rather not hear the truth or enter into the light of God's presence. It's too painful. And so we long for that kind of connection, but we fear the vulnerability in it, the sense of losing control. So we cover, often with ideology. So we make of ourselves, you know, I am a Republican. So ideology becomes who we are. I am a liberal Democrat. Not me, those are both goofy. I'm independent. Or we have our favorite surf company. No, we have to have just the right thing on our t-shirt. Shows who we are. Or think of your favorite, you know, shop in the mall. You know, that's where I shop because it, it somehow gives me my identity. But you know that famous um, Czech playwright and politician, Vaclav Havel, 
who got a lot of attention in the 90s and before he died in early 2000s. But he was so right when Havel said, ideology is a bogus way of relating to the world. It offers human beings the illusion of an identity, of dignity, and of morality, but it's actually a veil behind which human beings can hide their fallen existence, their trivialization, and their adaptation to the status quo. Do you get it? When you say I'm a Republican, you're just adapting to the status quo. There is nothing to that. It wasn't here a couple hundred years ago, and it might not be here a couple hundred years from now, but Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, came, and he lived, and he said, you can create your identity around me, not a political party, not a nation state, not an ethnicity, but you can create a new identity around me about who you actually are, and that is you are my daughter, spoken into existence by me, and I love you, and you have a never-ceasing experience coming to you in the new heavens and the new earth, and I want to be with you and you with me and us doing this thing together, my son, my daughter. And this is what John wants when he says, I want you to receive him. I want you to welcome him into your life. This is a very active thing. It's not a passive thing. And this is why you hear me talk so much about discipleship or spiritual formation. All I really mean to talk about is the active process of receiving God, of saying yes to him, of placing our confidence in him. So as we stop this morning, really maybe the question is something like this. In what sense do you have toast under your bed? Like, really? This person who made all things and who is light and who is life, we still don't trust him. But yet God keeps calling in the same way he called and sent John the Baptist and Peter and Paul and Mary and Martha. Just what if it was just like this? Your father, right, who created you and in whose house you live just says, will you do a little errand for me? It won't take long. It'll be just but a breath. In this life you have, but it's just but a breath. Would you do a little errand for me? And if you do, you will receive a completely different kind of life. You will become human as I intended. And you and I will continue to do this forever and ever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Just follow me. And that, my friends, is a great perspective for handling suffering and really hard bits of obedience. It's but a breath. So words, you know, John talked about the word this morning. Words are personal, they're intimate. They're a breath from inside us. Like right now as I make these words, think about how personal this is. This is air actually coming from my lungs, traversing somehow my vocal cords and coming out and riding the airwaves somehow. This is a deeply personal thing. But these words from John and Jesus, they have life and power to change the way people act. Like if I were just to say, Aaron, would you shut the door for me? My words have the power to make someone act. 
And this is the nature of the word from, uh, of God. It's deeply personal, and it was meant to make us act. Well, act in what way? Just simply receive and follow. To just think through, how is it that God is calling me this morning? And is there some way in which I am hiding from that light? Amen.